Hello, be beautiful. Welcome back to another episode of It's Time to Be You, the podcast that helps people pleasers take control and finally put themselves first. I'm your host, Ariel Von Bretter, and I'm a recovering people pleaser here to guide you on your journey in making yourself a priority, embracing who you truly are, and living life on your terms. And part of embracing who you truly are and who you truly want to be is coming to terms with your past. And we all have a past that has shaped us into who we are. And unfortunately for some of us, our past may have some really dark, traumatic experiences to it. But we have a choice in how we move forward from those past experiences. And as we learn to move forward, it can be so helpful to be vulnerable and hear vulnerable stories to show us that we are not alone in our struggles. And that's why I love getting to speak with a variety of people because you may not always relate to my story or someone else's story, but you can still learn something from somebody else. And so for this episode, we are joined by Charlene Madden. She's a speaker, author, empowerment coach, and creator of the Ignite Your Life Women's Workshop. But her past is a little dark. In this episode, Charlene openly shares her past experience with childhood sexual violence, domestic violence, suicide attempts, and her story changed when she learned that she had a choice and could accept the dark times and find the light. Charlene teaches us the three S's to help us heal and move forward and to continue to cope and the impact of vulnerability, and that it's okay not to be okay. And you'll learn that when we get honest about our past, that we can truly move forward and that we are meant to be here for a purpose. Charlene, thank you so much for being on the BU podcast today. Before we really get into it, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? My name is Charlene Madden. I live in the beautiful province of British Columbia, Canada, and I am kind of at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. So I live kind of in a heavenly place. I'm a mom of three amazing children. I am a happily married woman, and I am a, a women's empowerment coach, an author, and a lover of life. Oh, I love it. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you today. And like what we're really going to be talking today is like your story and like with mental health and struggles and how you got to where you are today. So I guess like, where did it all begin? Like, how did you get to be at a place where you are an empowerment coach and speaker? Yeah, it was a long journey and I got here through the struggles that I had throughout my life. It kind of gave me the understanding and the knowledge of pain and trauma that people go through and how you can rise up out of that. And my trauma really started at a younger age. I was three and a half when my parents got divorced and I was actually placed in the custody of my grandparents. And my grandmother was an absolutely amazing woman. She was very strong, independent. I always thought she was really far ahead for the era that she grew up in because she believed that women should get a really good education get a good job, be independent and be able to provide for themselves. Yeah. So, and I probably learned that lesson a little bit too well, but (laughs) as wonderful as my grandmother was, unfortunately, my grandfather was a pedophile. So at the age of three and a half, my sister was seven. When we went to live with my grandparents, we started experiencing sexualized violence at his hands. And this went on for close to a decade. It was just over nine years that the abuse went on and it really only came to light because at the age of 16, when my sister was in high school, 
she was actually afraid she was going to become impregnated by my grandfather. Wow. And she really desperately wanted to leave. She contemplated running away, but she knew if she left, the full force of his abuse would be turned on me. And she just desperately was trying to protect me. Mm. So she went to school, basically had a nervous breakdown and everything came out. So my grandfather was arrested, my grandparents divorced. And really the only family that I knew kind of just splintered apart. I grew up in a really small, well, small town, 2,500 people. So everybody kind of knew in town. It was talked about and it wasn't something that I could really escape from. This was the early 80s. So there wasn't really a lot of counseling, therapy, follow-up. It wasn't a thing. And I think a lot of it stemmed from my grandmother's belief that you just deal with what life throws at you. Just put your head down and go. Yeah. And so we didn't receive any counseling. And right. I remember sitting in a social worker's office after it came out and the social worker just kind of coming up behind me and patting me on the shoulder and saying, I want you to know everything's going to be okay. Now I'm 12 and a half. I have no idea at this point in my life what okay is or what it's supposed to look like because it's never been okay. Right. Yeah. And so I go into high school and I start struggling right away with mental health struggles and depression and the stigma that I was dealing with and no understanding, no healthy coping mechanisms to deal with all the emotional trauma that I was feeling. So yeah. I very quickly um, started being depressed and having suicidal ideologies. And as an outlet, I started cutting. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not a very healthy outlet at the time, but it's right. all that I had until I discovered writing. Mm -hmm. And I started writing poetry and it was a way for me to purge all these emotions that I was feeling. And I always yeah. said I was pouring ink onto paper or blood. It was usually one of those two options as a way mm -hmm. of just coping with the overwhelming emotions. Right. And of course it caught the attention of my English teacher because it was very dark and depressing kind of stuff. Talked about suicide. And I was sent off to, you know, see a school psychologist and I spent four hours having questionnaires done, you know, talking to the school psychologist. And at the end of it, mm -hmm. she says, I want you to know we're diagnosing you as being manic depressive bipolar. And now I'm 15 and I'm like, yeah. I have no idea what that means. Right. right. I mean, we're not talking. I couldn't pick up my cell phone and Google it because that didn't <laughs> exist. I sure wasn't pulling the books out of the school library or going to go ask anybody what it was. Yeah. It just kind of felt like more shame on top of me, because now I felt like I was crazy on top of it. Yeah. And again, no follow-up. It was a, wow. you know, we're here, uh, book an appointment with us if things get overwhelming and you need to talk. And I'm thinking the last thing I want to do is talk about this. Like right. I just want to like forget all of this exists, all, all of this happened. And all I could think about was just getting through school and moving. Mm -hmm. Like I just wanted to go where someone, no one knew who I was. I could just be a face in the crowd. And so that's what I yeah. yeah. And it kind of started, that's where my pattern of running to avoid things kind of started. So I threw myself into school. I did really well in school and I just got through high school and moved, you know, mm -hmm. I moved to a bigger, bigger city than I was living in. Yeah. And I moved with my high school sweetheart and we thought that we were going to move away and live this perfect 
you know, fairy tale life. But of course, I was bringing all my baggage with me. Right. I never dealt with anything that had happened. And, you know, we decided quickly on that, you know, we were going to have a start of family. So I was 20 when I got pregnant, 21 when I had my first daughter. And I think I thought that having kids was going to fix that hole that I had inside of me. Yeah. I think I thought I was going to break that cycle of generational trauma. I was going to be the mom that I had never had. But the fact was, I was being the mom, yes, that I had never had because my mom had left. But right. But I wasn't being a good mom because I didn't have any of the tools to deal with the uh, psychological trauma that I had experienced. And the coping mechanism that I chose was drinking. Yeah. So I was numb all the time. I wasn't present. I was a full-time working mom. I was always joked I was never that PTA mom, but yeah. um, I, you know, just threw myself into work. That was always my outlet. If I could keep my mind busy, I didn't have to think about all the things that I was, I was feeling. Yeah. But unfortunately, you can only avoid that for so long. And when I was 28, I hit a wall of, I was once again, extremely suicidal. And I was contemplating, you know, I was planning out how I could take my life, knowing that it would be my kids that was going to find me. Right. I remember sitting down with my husband and saying, hey, I've got to leave the house. Like, I'm not fit to look after myself, let alone three little kids. And I need time to get myself together here. And realistically, at this point, our marriage was basically over. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was quite fine with me to leave. So I moved out thinking I was going to get myself together. But all leaving the house did was just dump more guilt and shame on me because now I had just repeated what my parents had done. Yeah. So I started drinking more, if that was possible at the time. And a month after I left my marriage, I jumped right into another relationship because I was so desperate for someone to love me and someone to want me. And I think secretly I'd hoped that my husband would fight for the marriage that he would say, no, you know, we'll make this work. But when he didn't, it just felt like another emotional abandonment at the time because I was looking for that from everybody else. Right. And of course the relationship I got into was extremely toxic. I always say that like attracts like, and mm-hmm. he was, he had just gotten out of a bad relationship. He was an alcoholic. I didn't know it at the time, but he was a drug addict and he was violent when he drank. Yeah. So very quickly I started experiencing domestic violence wow. and it kind of fit what I thought I deserved. I had so much guilt for leaving my kids that I felt like this was karma. I was getting what I deserved. Right. For messing up everybody's life. Yeah. And I just kind of went with this. And about two years in, after a bad episode, I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I went to my medicine cabinet and I took all the pills that were in it. Mm-hmm. And I sat down on my couch to write a goodbye letter to my kids before I passed away. Yeah. Well. And as I'm writing that letter, which I'm glad I sat down to write that letter, I realized that this was abandoning my kids in the most ultimate way that I could. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't deal with that guilt on top of everything else. So I called a cab. I went to the emergency room, was explaining that I was overdosing on pills and I collapsed in the reception area and woke up in a room with tubes down my throat. Mm -hmm. And my partner sitting in a chair beside me crying, saying how sorry he was. Yeah. 
I get discharged from the hospital and my mom says, she calls me and says, Hey, I think you need to move across the country. She was living in Western Canada. And she says, I think you need to move across the country, bring the kids. We'll help you get, you know, your life together. We'll help you get on your feet. Everything will be great. And I thought, okay, yeah, sure. This fits my pattern of just running away from my problems instead of dealing with them. So, So that's what I did. I moved across the country, took my kids and six months later, my partner decided he was going to follow me out with the promise that everything was going to be different. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, yeah, maybe it's going to be different because he's moving away from all of his friends, all of his family. He's moving here for me. Yeah. He must love me so much that he's moving. And the reality was that nothing changed. Yeah. That um, just, you know, continued with dysfunction, the violence, the drinking, the drug addiction, the adultery, it just kept going. And it went on for Cade. Wow. And I remember finally one day in July of 2015, he came home and said, I'm moving out today. And I was kind of like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm moving out and I'm moving in with another person. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is the abandonment all over again, complete betrayal. Yeah. And I thought, okay, Charlene, this is okay. This is your opportunity to finally get yourself together. Yeah. And we're going to take this time and we're going to rebuild our lives. And I was on that path. And about two and a half months after he left, I was at work one evening and a police officer came in and asked if he could talk to me outside. Now, this was an officer who had been involved in one of our domestic disputes prior. Mm -hmm. So he knew where to find me. And he took me outside and said, Charlene, I just came on shift and I saw a notice on the board and I wanted to come talk to you. We got a call today. Your partner, your ex-partner has killed himself. He's taken his life. Oh, wow. And I was devastated. Yeah. I think part of me once again held on to this hope that I would be enough that he would want to get his life together and we would get back together. And now that was gone. It was, again, the ultimate abandonment. Yeah. So that was when I started on my down, real downward spiral. I tried to keep a, you know, positive outlook on my face. I wore that mask that I had mastered so well and Mm -hmm. really tried to pretend that I was okay when slowly I was sinking deeper and deeper into darkness. Yeah. And I remember being at a spot where I knew if I didn't do something, I was going to end my life. I was sitting on my bathroom floor with a gun cabinet key in one hand, a handful of pills in the other hand, trying to think which would be the best option um, to do, knowing that my son was, you know, downstairs sleeping in his bedroom. And I, you know, threw those things down and grabbed a knife and started cutting myself again. And as the blood is pooling on the floor under me, I realized we've got to do something. We've got to get help. And this was the first time that getting help really had entered my mind. Yeah. So I contacted a a local mental health service. I went to see a psychiatrist and I was about three appointments in, and I was probably getting a little frustrated because we kept talking about my past. And I was like, I don't want to talk about my past. That whole, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Yeah. I was like, look, I know why I am messed up. I know where my issues come from. I just need you to tell me how to fix it. Yeah. (laughs) And my personality of just give me this step, this step, this step. I'll do it. I'll be better. 
And I remember asking her going, like, how did you deal with your mental health struggles? Yeah. And watching her eyes glaze over and go, Charlene, I've actually never had any mental health struggles. Really? And I'm sitting there thinking, then how can you possibly tell me that you understand how I feel? Right. Yeah. You've been telling me you understand. You can't understand. Right. If you've never experienced it. You don't understand the darkness if you've never sat in it. Yeah. And I kind of checked out. That was the moment where I went, I can't even get help when I want to get help. Like I felt just completely lost at that point. And I walked out of that appointment and I had just, you know, let her know that I was in the process of purchasing a house because I had received a life insurance policy for my ex's passing. Mm -hmm. And she was so excited for me to be buying the house because people that are going to commit suicide do not buy houses. <laughs> but what I was thinking at the time was that this was the legacy I was going to leave my children because I felt it was the only thing of value that I had. Right. Yeah. And I left, I was taking possession of my house a couple of weeks from that date. So the end of September. And I set a date when I left that appointment that a month after I took possession of my house, I was going to end my life. I was going to mm -hmm. take a month, get settled in the house, make sure everything was organized for my son because he was the only one left at home. Yeah. And then I was going to end my life. Wow. And so I moved in, was getting everything settled. And I was about two weeks out from the date that I had set to end my life when a coworker and a friend of mine came up and said, hey, there's this women's workshop in the next town over where we were living. She's like, mm -hmm. would you like to come with me? And I was like, no, I'm good. Thank you. Cause I was thinking this is the last thing I want. And she's like, please, I really want to go, but I don't want to go alone. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, All right. That's my kryptonite. Cause I don't want to see anybody else in pain or suffer. Like it's okay for me, but you know, and I was yeah. like, well, and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, fine. We'll go because I know she really needs to go. I know she needs to get some confidence and feel better about herself. Like I'm cl completely projecting how I am onto her. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go. And I'm thinking this is actually perfect because the workshop is two days before I'm set to end my life. Yeah. So I will go on the Saturday, Sunday. I'll sit in that room. I'll pretend that I'll, I'm fine. No one will suspect anything. And then I go Monday morning and I take my life. Wow. So I showed up to the workshop that Saturday morning. I had my hunting rifle already in the back seat of my vehicle. Yeah. And I had the location picked, the time picked. It was all, it was the formality was just getting through that weekend. Right. And I walked into the room of the workshop and I immediately felt sick to my stomach because I felt so out of place. And it yeah. just emphasized how I felt my entire life. I'm looking at a room full of women who are well-dressed, who seem like they have it all together. These are the PTA moms is what I'm thinking <laughs> as I'm looking at the room. So I do not fit. Yeah. And I'm thinking that it's just, you know, I feel like there's a spotlight on me saying, you know, this person doesn't belong here. And I just try to get to my, my seat as quickly as possible. and just, you know, thinking I have two days to get through. We can do this. Yeah. And the first half of the day is just people talking about financial wellness and a diet and exercise. And of course, I'm kind of chuckling in my head thinking none of these things are even, you know, relatable to me at this point. Yeah. And then the afternoon session comes on and a woman takes the stage and she is bald. She is okay. suffering from alopecia. So she's mm -hmm. lost all of her hair. 
And she talks about the struggles she experienced as a child, as a teenager, and as a young woman with her feelings of self-worth, of not loving her fit the mold of what a woman is supposed to look like. Yeah. And how her life changed when she embraced the concept of self-love, mm-hmm. that she realized that if she just loved herself, it didn't matter what society thought or felt about her. Right. As long as she loved and valued herself, that was all that mattered. Yeah. And she talked about how drastically her life had changed ever since she made that choice. And as I'm sitting there, I hear a little voice in the back of my head that says, what about you? And I'm mm. thinking, yeah, how different could my life have been had I chose to love myself and not need that validation from everyone outside of me? Right. You know, had I stopped looking for someone to love me and I've been the one to love myself, like how different could things have been? Right. Yeah. And I just kind of, you know, brushed it off. And then the next speaker comes up and it's a woman who starts talking about living with mental health struggles and two decades of depression Mm -hmm. and how much she had struggled with suicidal ideology and how the moment that she recognized that the depression was a part of her. Yeah. You know, instead of fighting against it, she embraced it as being a part of her, which meant she could love that part of herself as well. And she could pull the darkness in to let the light in instead Mm -hmm. of trying to push and keep the darkness at bay. Right. Yeah. And she talked about how drastically, again, that her life had changed once she started to love that part of her as well. And again, I'm sitting there and I hear that voice that says, what about you? And I'm thinking, yeah, like how different would my life have been if I could have learned to live with my mental illness? Yeah. Instead of fighting against it all these years what if I loved that part of me as well? Right. And, you know, again, I kind of slough it off because, you know, I've already made my decision. Yeah. And the next speaker comes up, last speaker of the day, and it's a gentleman. And he starts talking about his marriage, going through a divorce, losing custody of his children, being an alcoholic, being addicted to pain medication mm-hmm. and being depressed and suicidal. And how he had spent a year of his life trying to find a perfect mix of pain medication and alcohol so that he could make commit suicide, but make it look like an accident. Oh, wow. Because he sold life insurance and he knew it had to look like an accidental overdose. Right. And on one very rare occasion, his wife asked if he could would take his kids overnight. And of course he jumped at the opportunity and it was on that night that he found that mix of pain medication and alcohol. Yeah. And he was laying on his couch, slowly overdosing with his kids in the room next to him. Mm. When he heard a voice that said, no, not like this, not today. There's more. Wow. And he managed to get to his cell phone, called 911, obviously made it to the hospital and his whole life changed. Yeah. He got clean and sober. He got into counseling and therapy and he got the help that he needed. And now he was taking his story of his pain and his struggles and living in the dark. And he was sharing it in hopes that other people would hear his story and know that there is hope. There is a way out. And as I'm sitting in that seat at that moment, I am kind of going, what is going on right now? Like I'm almost looking around for a hidden camera at this point (laughs) because I'm thinking, what are the chances that I'm here at this moment? 
Mm -hmm. I'm at an event that I didn't want to come to. Right. And I've just heard three speakers talk about the areas of my life that I've struggled the most with and that have caused me the most pain and have pushed me to the point where I'm ready to end my life. And I've just heard three people talk about how they've gotten through those experiences Mm -hmm. and now they were sharing their stories and their struggles. And I'm kind of sitting there going, okay, this can't be an accident. Yeah. Like I'm here at this moment to hear these stories for a reason. And was this the first time that you like heard other stories that were like had similar things to you? I think it was the first time that I heard people being so raw and so open and honest about it. You know, like I'd kind of heard other stories on, you know, TV or read just kind of read stuff in books, but I'd never sat there in person and watched someone process the emotions of the struggles that they went through. Yeah. And I hadn't been, I think the most important part was I hadn't been ready to hear the message until that moment. Yeah. I had silenced everything enough because my decision was made. Right. So there was no internal struggle or dialogue because my decision was made. So it was probably the first time that I was quiet enough Mm -hmm. to hear those messages. Yeah. And it was like knowing at that moment that there was a way out and it didn't have to be that way. Yeah. That, you know, wait a minute, maybe my, and that that's what I say for like that my purpose was found in that moment mm-hmm. because I went, you know what, like these people are out here sharing their stories and hopes of touching a life, which they yeah. did. Yeah. What if I took my stories and my struggles, which I know other people have experienced Mm-hmm. And I go out and I share them as well. Like, yeah. could I give inspiration? I'd always wanted to help other people. That had been from the time I was a child. I always wanted to, number one, share other people's stories. Yeah. Probably as a way of having my own voice, because at that time I was being a child, I didn't have a voice. I couldn't right. share my secrets that I was holding. Yeah. So I'm sitting there going, this is my opportunity to have my voice. Mm-hmm. And I made my decision in that moment. And I say it was like a light switch moment where I go, no, I'm choosing to live. Yeah. I choose now to live. I know that I can get through this. If they've gotten through it, I know I can. Mm-hmm. And I can take everything and I can share and hopefully, you know, help someone else. Yeah. I That's actually, so I went powerful. Up to the woman, <laughs> I went up to the woman who organized the event and I said, I, I would love to sit down and talk to you about what this event meant for me because it was so important. I mean, the fire was lit inside me at that point. Yeah. And I sat down and shared my story with her. And I remember saying, I would love to come back next year and talk at your event just yeah. to share what this, you know, the power that, that these events can have. And she was like, yeah, absolutely. I would love to have you come back. Yeah. So I went back the next year and I went on her stage and I shared my story. And I remember saying before I got off that, you know, my hope in sharing my stories is that I can reach one person who's in that dark place. Mm-hmm. And by reaching them, I hope I can save just one life. And if I can save one life by sharing my story, then everything I have gone through in my life has been worth it. Yeah. And stories I, are so powerful. Powerful. It's, yeah. It's like the more that you can share it and just help other people not feel so alone or ashamed and that they can yeah. survive too. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. And you've got one heck of a story that you've uh-huh. been through. So what happened after you left like that workshop? 
and you made that decision to like keep living, like what happened next? When I, when I got off the stage after making that statement, I had a woman that had been in the audience approach me and, and said, you know how you said you wanted to save a life? I was like, yeah. And she goes, I just want you to know today you did. And she turned and walked wow. away. Oh, wow. And I was like, and I still get goosebumps every time that I tell that story. Yeah. And I was sitting there kind of in shock. And yeah. then I heard that little voice that's in the back of my head that I've learned that we're really great friends now. But <laughs> it said, okay, now let's go find one more. Mm. Right? Yeah. So for me, every day is about reaching out and trying to find that one more, that one more person that just needs to hear my story and to know that there is hope and to know that someone understands. Yeah. Right. And not, and actually understands, not just saying those words. And so I set myself on a path of putting myself out there, like living in freedom, not in fear, because I realized how much I'd let fear control my life. So I started to do things that took me outside of my comfort zone and sharing my story in the beginning was out of my comfort zone because I was so afraid of judgment. Right. And, and I realized that if I'm feeling that way, I know other people are feeling that way. So sometimes you have to blaze the trail to make room for other people to follow behind. Yeah. So I start, I, I published my book of poetry, all the poems that I'd wrote as a, as a child that helped me get through my, my depression. I published that book. And for me, that was kind of ripping open my chest and saying, here's who I am. Yeah. I'm not wearing the mask anymore because I had been a master of that mask. Mm-hmm. And it was starting to talk about to the people around me of the things that I had been experiencing. And it was it was surprising for a lot of people because, you know, I had this persona of being a very strong, confident, you know, woman. I was a bar manager and covered in tattoos. And people mm-hmm. were like, you know, thought I was that rough, tough person when all it was was just this wall I was keeping up to protect myself. So yeah. being able to be vulnerable and sharing that experiences opened up a dialogue with other people who started sharing that they were into, in fact, experiencing, you know, struggles with mental illness. So, yeah. and then just having these conversations and these dialogues, it led me to deciding to create my workshop. I host a once a year workshop and it was because the woman that had you know, hosted the events that I I went to, she kind of said, you know, uh, it's been five years, I need to take a break. It's a lot of work. And I was sitting there, oh, that's too bad because I know the impact these workshops can have. You know, it's too bad someone else doesn't step up and do it. And then I heard that little voice that said, what about you? (laughs) Hey, can you stop nominating me for things? (laughs) And I was like, you're right. Like, I know more than anybody, the impact these events can have. So I started my own, my own workshop and then having the workshop led me to having women coming and, and talking and sitting down. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to start a coaching practice because I've got women coming to me and going, okay, like, how are you stepping outside and doing the scary things and doing the things that are moving the needle for you? So I started my, my one-on-one coaching practice and started speaking more and just to put myself out there. And again, for me, it's all about just reaching that one person. So whatever opportunity I can get like today, yeah, that one person. So, yeah, I mean, just focusing on like that one person at a time is still so powerful because just like you, you started out as one person, but then you have such by sharing your story and still being here, like that's such a huge impact 
and then you've impacted others and it's just a huge ripple of ripples. I know yeah. that's the, that's the theme that I try to tell people. It's like, we never understand how far that one pebble that we are, the ripples will reach. Yeah. Understanding that we're all creating ripples in some kind. So, yeah. And so how are you coping now? Like after you heard that initial workshop and you learned, you know, more about like, what if I did like have that self-love and accept my depression and accept all this stuff? Like, do you still deal with those kind of issues or what does this look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tell, it's not a magic wand. It's not like, okay, I'm better now because, you know, mental illness is like diabetes, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to have this for the rest of my life. It's just learning how to cope with it in the healthiest way possible. So for me, that's developing some self-care routines, doing things that, you know, focusing on, on gratitude, which, you know, is huge for me because sometimes when you get in that dark place, you don't feel like you have anything good in your life. So just finding one thing each day, just start off with one if you feel that there's nothing. And when I, the clients that I work with, like I always work on a 3S pattern. So it's like getting really self-responsible and understanding Mm -hmm. that we're responsible for where we are in our lives. I mean, I could, of anybody, I could point fingers and blame everybody else for where I am in my life. But at this point, I'm choosing to make the choices that I'm making and I have to accept that responsibility and go, okay, so if I'm making these choices, what different choices can I make? Mm -hmm. So accepting, you know, that self-responsibility And self-acceptance, you know, accepting the parts of me that aren't perfect, you know, because there's no perfect person. So I accept myself flaws and all. And that also incorporates the self-love, right? Like Mm -hmm. not relying on someone else to love me and knowing that, you know what, I deserve to be loved. I don't need that from anyone else. I will love myself because I'm worthy of that love. Right. And I think just having, I mean, I have the word I am worthy plastered, you know, it's in my office, it's on my bathroom sink. It's like, it's a constant reminder to me that I am worthy you know? yeah. and I, I validate myself for that. So, so I just understanding that. those three S's, you know, self-acceptance, self-responsibility and self-love. Yeah. I really like that. And I really like that you talk about self-responsibility because I think that is huge of like, we do have choices and I think a lot of times people can easily, you know, play the victim and think like, oh, my life sucks and all this stuff is happening to me and get stuck in down that road. But you can make a choice, you know, to see things differently and accept what happened and kind of move Mm -hmm. on. So, yeah, I'm Mm -hmm. curious. And it's my office. I always tell my clients when they come in, my office is a radical honesty zone. Right. So when you come in, you have to be radically honest and not sometimes that's difficult because people don't want to, you know, we don't want to admit sometimes that we're the ones that are to blame for where we are. So. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, like with your story and, you know, all that you've experienced, how do you kind of use like that self-responsibility or maybe it's more of self-acceptance to like move forward? Like, how did you get past all of the stuff that you dealt with in your childhood. Mm -hmm. I understand that I chose the coping mechanisms that I chose. I didn't ask for help, you know, and that was help is not going to come to us. You know, we sometimes have this romantic notion that someone is going to come sweeping in and save us. And at the end of the day, we have to save ourselves. 
Right. So understanding that I'm responsible for number one, what I put into my body and my mind, you know, Mm -hmm. if I'm putting crappy thoughts in, I'm going to get crappy thoughts out. Yeah. So, and I always, like I talk about forgiveness and people, it's sometimes a really difficult thing for people to grasp because they think, you know, I have forgiven everybody in my life that has done me wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are like, like even your grandpa. And I'm like, yeah, even my grandpa, like I have, I have forgiven that the hardest person for me to forgive was myself. Yeah. It was easier for me to forgive other people. I had so much regret over the mom that I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, the part, the white that I wasn't, you yeah. know, in my first marriage. And I remember sitting because both of my daughters suffer from mental illness struggles as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in a room with a bunch of social workers with my oldest daughter as she's yelling at me about what a terrible mother I was. And she was 100% right. And sitting there and just having this concept come into my head. And I didn't really understand how powerful it was at the time, but going, you know, I did the best I could with the tools that I had. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And to me, that is grace. Yeah. You know, So I walked out because I really did. I didn't have any coping tools or skills to deal with all the trauma I had experienced. So I really was doing the best I could. And when I walked out of that, I was kind of like, okay, wait a minute. If I'm willing to give that grace to myself, I need to understand that everybody in my life has been doing the best that they could with the tools that they had. Yeah. You know, my mom experienced sexual abuse at my grandfather's hands as Mm -hmm. a younger woman. Yeah. But she was really doing the best that she could. You know, my dad being an alcoholic, he was doing the best that he could. My grandfather, I don't know what his childhood was like. I don't know what he experienced as a child. Right. I have to give him the grace to go. Maybe he was doing the best he could with the tools that he had. Yeah. Not good choices, but you know, I have to give that grace. So that was huge for me. So, yeah, I think that is like really like kind of a powerful thing to think about of like, everyone's doing the best that they can with what they have in that moment. And I think that's so powerful as like giving yourself grace and other people as well. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like with your children and like with your family, like since you've started sharing your story, how has it impacted like those relationships? My mom and I are probably the closest that we've ever been. Yeah. And I think it allowed us to open up and have dialogue. You know, I was really nervous in the beginning, like the first live workshop that I had, I invited my mom to come to. And of course, I was worried that she would, you know, be embarrassed or feel shame or anything, any emotions that she might have. But it opened up the space for us to have a dialogue the following day a really the most open conversation we've ever had about all the experiences and it was so healing. Yeah. So, and I think for, I think for my daughters, it allows a little bit of light to shine in Mm -hmm. on, on what my experiences were, because of course I didn't talk, talk a lot about this to my daughters. Yeah. And I really think it's one mistake that we make as parents. And I, I recognize that now we have this persona or this idea that we have to keep it all together in the face of our kids. Right. And we have to protect our kids from our own struggles. And I think we really do a disservice to them for that because yeah. we're teaching our kids that we have to pretend to be okay, even when we're not okay. 
Mm-hmm. And I want my daughters to be able to say, you know what? I'm not okay right now Yeah, because that's okay. Admitting that you're not okay opens the door for yourself to heal, for other people to come in and help. So for me to be able to have that conversation with them now, for them to see me speak about it, it allows them to kind of understand that, okay, yeah, mom wasn't perfect. She didn't make good choices, but she was doing the best she could with the tools that she had. Yeah. So I love that. And I mean, that's just like another kind of testimony of like when you're open and honest about what's going on and like sharing that vulnerability that you can be closer and also Uh people can have more of an understanding because I think it's so easy for people to just, we were all trying to like hide it ourselves and pretend we're perfect and nothing's going on, but we're humans. We're experiencing human things and you know, it's okay to not be okay. And the more that we kind of open that. Yeah. (laughs) I was just going to say that that's what I want people to understand that it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. And so for anyone that is like listening and they can kind of relate to parts of your story, like what do you want people to really take away and understand? Again, as we just said, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Right. Like we don't have to have it. We have this message from society that we have to have it all together all the time. And you know what? You don't have to have it all together. If you need a day, a week, if you need a month to not be okay and to just to look after yourself, take that time. Yeah. And to know that you can sit in the dark and still rise up into the light afterwards. And you're never alone. And I think that is what we feel so often is that we're alone and we don't want to confide in the people around us and the people that we love. Because, you know, I I know for myself, I was like, everyone has their own problems. They don't need to know about mine. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to be a burden. You know, it was always that need to protect other people, but from being on both sides of the spectrum to losing the person to, to suicide and to being that person, people want to be there for you. Yeah. It doesn't matter who it is. And if you don't have anyone in your life that you feel wants to be there for you, I will be there for you. Yeah. Right. Like I, I always leave a message, you know, when I'm doing a podcast that, you know, I always say, if you're feeling lost and alone and you have no one to talk to reach out to me because I do understand what it feels like. And I do know you feel alone and trapped in the darkness and I will come and sit virtually with anyone in the dark. Right. I'll yeah. sit with you live if you're close. I'll sit with you. But, you know, I want people to know that you can sit and hold space. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to, you know, say, hey, we're going to get better tomorrow. Right. We may not get better for a week, a month, six months, five years, however long, 40 years, you know, <laughs> however long it takes. But the, the light is there. You just have to reach out and embrace it. So, yeah. I mean, I love that. And I love that you hold that space for people because it's so important because, yeah, unfortunately, everyone doesn't have that space where they can feel like they can reach out to someone who's close Mm -hmm. to them because of, you know, fear of judgment or shame or whatever. So, I mean, I just, yeah, always want people to know like there is someone you can go to. And so how can they find you and reach out to you? Yeah, I'm on all the social media platforms. You can yeah. find me on Facebook, Charlene Madden, speaker, author. My workshop is Ignite Your Life. 
BC. That's my logo behind me. So you can follow that. My website for working with me is Ascension Wellness Studio. So yeah. And I mean, just reach out if you hear this episode, if you related to it, if it touched you, of course, subscribe. I want to say, make sure you subscribe to hear other, all the other amazing speakers, but just drop me a message and say, Hey, I heard your, I heard your story and it touched me. And I just, I love to hear, I usually get a couple messages a day from people saying, Hey, I heard your episode. And I just want to say thank you. So for me, I don't do it for the accolades, but I love connecting with other people who've had similar experiences. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to put this in the show notes and I'm sure people are going to reach out to you and I mean, I just appreciate how like raw and vulnerable you were with sharing your story. And, you know, I think people can definitely relate to it and just know that they're not alone is, is huge. Absolutely. Um, And I always like to ask, like, how has being yourself impacted your success? I think because I am just so, I'm just a normal person, you know, like I, I don't, put myself on a pillar. I'm just a dysfunctional person trying to make a (laughs) functional life in this world that we're all just trying to get through. So I'll never be perfect. And I don't aspire for perfection. I just try to be one better than I was the day before. So I'm just a normal person. I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you for having your platform. So if you have ever dealt with sexual or domestic violence, mental health issues, suicide, or anything else, please, please know that you are not alone. Those experiences do not define who you are, and your story of moving forward can help someone else to keep moving forward. And as Charlene said, you can always reach out to her if you need someone to hold space for you that actually understands what you're going through. And if you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone else that needs to hear it. Let's help Charlene's story reach one more person so that we can help more people find light in the darkness. It's time to accept our past. It's time to be self-responsible, self-accepting, and have more self-love. It's time to be you.